Grateful to be here this morning with you. Grateful that I get the opportunity to uh, open the Word this morning for us. Uh, I can't believe it's February already. I can't believe that it's the second Sunday of February already. Uh, last weekend was awesome. How many of y'all were here? I, I can get, so many people were here and it was awesome. It was amazing. Thank you for showing up. It was so fun uh, and so there as a family to declutter, take a first initial step here and I think back to of the last five weeks of, of January and just the, the beauty of being up here, not alone on this, but people and hearing stories uh, about just what God's done over the last 10, 12 years in our community, uh, both in this fellowship and, and outside as we've lived, tried to live by faith uh, in the gospel. Um, you know, this Sunday I'm excited too, though, because, uh, yeah, we're kicking off a new, a new series. We're, we're going to be opening up the book of Philippians and... I'm really excited about it. I, uh, I wasn't sure if it was what I was supposed to do or what we were supposed to go through, and there's a couple of things that just kind of confirmed it along the way, which probably will come out throughout the series. But yeah, this morning, I, I want to just jump right in. I'm excited for, for what I, I believe uh, is God's heart for us through this book this morning as we kick it off. And so to that end, I, I want to just do that. So if you have, you have a book, uh, a Bible in front of you, there's some in the pew or on your phone, however you want to do it. If not, it'll be uh, on the screen in front of you. But Throughout this series in Philippians, one of the things I've realized is that I'd be willing to bet, I would put money on it, that I, each one of you probably right now could quote off the top of your head uh, a scripture from Philippians. You might not even know it, but I guarantee you that there's probably two to three verses from each chapter of Philippians that, that you know, that maybe you say, maybe you've even seen them on signs. You probably see some maybe even today on signs in the Super Bowl. They're taken out of context. And it's kind of crazy and kind of sad because within the context of Philippians, those verses that probably you and I all know are so much more rich. There's so much more depth to them. And there's actually so much that God can and wants to teach us through them. So I'm excited to see what it looks like for us to journey through this book of Philippians that Paul wrote. Uh, and really, we're going to be focusing on what you said there. What, what is it like to live worthy of the gospel? Again, if you have a Bible, open it up. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read 1 through 14 this morning, and then we're going to talk about it. Uh, and it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so we see Paul here in, in the last two verses in 12 and 14 talks about what has happened to me. 
and how it has served to, to advance the gospel. And he mentions up in verse 7 about whether uh, in my imprisonment, and you're partakers of that grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense of the gospel. And so I want to talk about the context because it's really important here, again, for us to understand a lot of those verses better and the whole book and our whole journey over the next eight or nine weeks. What's happening here is that Paul's in prison, and we believe that he's in Rome. Some say he might be in Ephesus, but either way, if he's in Rome, he's 800 miles away from where this church is in Philippi. If he's in Ephesus, he's several hundred miles away, but he's, he's in prison, and it's, it's home arrest. And so what's happening is he, he can't go out of his home. He can't go anywhere else, but there's Praetorian guards that are there uh, assigned to him. 24-7, there's guards there, and he can have guests. He can have visitors. But he can't work, so he can't earn, and he can't go out of his house. He has to be stuck there because the reason why he's there is because they're trying to shut him up from preaching the gospel. He's been living by faith. He's been preaching the gospel. People have been coming to know Christ, and the Romans aren't happy about it. So he's imprisoned. What happened is uh, the Philippians, they, they've sent someone to him. They've sent a, a, a man named Epaphroditus, which we'll learn about in, in chapter 2. But they've sent Epaphroditus, and along with Epaphroditus, they've sent a gift. They've sent finances in order to support Paul so that he can eat, so that he can live, so that he can sustain himself. The year of writing of this is, is probably about 60 to 62 AD. And Paul has basically believes he's towards the end of his life. He, he's right in assuming that. What out is that Paul you know, ends up getting martyred in around 64 or something like that. So there's something about this imprisonment, something about the things going on in his context where he just feels compelled to write, to write to the Philippians. And, and we read here in the beginning that he says, I'm writing to you out of, out of affection, affection that I have of Christ Jesus. He writes and he says, I long to be with you. He talks about this joy that he has. And what we learn and what we know from the context of, of Acts and the founding of the church, which we're going to look at for a moment, is that this was actually, the church in Philippi was actually the very first church that Paul uh, founded in, in Europe. There's been churches already founded through his first missionary journey, uh, what happened is Paul took his second missionary journey and the very first place that he goes is Philippi. And so Paul writes this letter to them out of deep affection as he says here. And what he wants to do, one of the goals here is very different than a lot of his other letters. If you were to go read Galatians, if we were to go read First and Second Corinthians, those are letters that are, they, they would call um, very polemic in nature, meaning there's an issue and something needs to be talked about, something needs to be addressed, or they're very apologetic, where there's key doctrine and theology that needs to be taught, again, because of issues going on. This letter is different. This is like a, a letter of, of friendship, if you will, and a letter that, again, speaks to this deep Christ-like affection that Paul has for this church, and also then words of great encouragement uh, because of the context that they're living in. Paul's wanting to encourage them to persevere and mature in their faith amidst the opposition and the challenges in the context that they're living. Now, in order to understand this, I, I want to go back and look at Acts because one of the key things that Paul says here and that Philippians speaks to is in verse 5 where he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And what this partnership is and what Paul means from the first day until now, I want us to go back and look at that first day. So again, if you have your Bible, flip over to, to Acts 16. We're going to do a little survey of this uh, before we can get to the meat of what we need to talk about in Philippians today. Let me just set up Acts 16 for you for a moment. In Acts 15, what, what has happened is that uh, Paul and Barnabas are partnered together, and they've been going on a, on a journey. And there are these Judaizers, or men from Judea, it says, that come in, and they're trying to say to the, to the Greek and Roman converts to Christ, they're trying to say, in order for you to be saved, you have to fall in line or fall underneath the full order of the Mosaic law, including circumcision. 
And so there's a, there's a debate about this, and they send Paul and Barnabas, the church sends Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. And so Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council. At the end of Acts 15 is this is where Paul and Barnabas have that great debate that some of you might be familiar with, and it's whether or not do we take John Mark with us or not. And so Barnabas says, yeah, I'll take John Mark, and they go. And Paul says, I'll choose Silas, and they go. And what happens is uh, Paul then leaves with Silas, and he goes up from up through Syria, up through Cilicia. We'll look at a map in a moment. And he lands uh, with Silas in a place called Derby and Lystra at the beginning of chapter 16. And they meet Timothy. And so now what we're going to be reading, this is Paul, this is Silas, this is Timothy, who is both Jew and Greek. And they're here uh, up in this northern area in Macedonia. And so starting in verse 6, this is what I want to read. It says, And so they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Interesting statement. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. Again, really interesting statement. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Trous, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So right away, again, Paul's going to be talking a lot about partnership in the gospel throughout the book of Philippians. But one of the key things that undergird that is Paul himself and his understanding of what does it look like for him to be a partner with God in the work that he's already doing in the gospel. Him being attuned to the Spirit and where does God say, go and be my partner or not? Where does God allow or give him the freedom to go and proclaim the gospel or not? So I think we're going to keep that in mind as we talk about this context of partnership. And so now as we get into this in Acts 6, 6 through 10, I want to look at this map really quick and just give you, give you a picture. I asked Kelly if he's got a handy dandy pointer. He said he does. All right, so here's, here's Jerusalem. This was the Council of Jerusalem. They go up, it said, through Syria and Cilicia, and they're here in this area, and they, they separate Paul. Uh, Iconium and Lystra is like right in here, and so that's where Paul meets Timothy. And to give you an idea, he thought he was going to go up through here, through Phrygia and Galatia, but the Holy Spirit says, nope. So he thought he was going to go up into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit says, nope. So they spend the night here in Trous, and this is in Trous where Paul gets this vision and this dream of these people up here, this man up here in Macedonia, that says, come up here and rescue us. Come up here and save us. So he leaves from Trous, he, he sails here, he goes up north, uh, there's, a, there's a, a port city that's here that they land in, and Philippi is actually about 10 miles north of that port city, and this is all important, you'll see in a second, because here's Rome, and what we're going to learn about Philippi is that Philippi is actually, it's along this, this east-west uh, route, this main road that allowed uh, Rome basically to keep good tabs on everybody here on this eastern side. Everything you see in color, this is the whole Roman Empire in the day and at the time, and this is also the land and the ground of, of Paul's ministry journeys all throughout here. But Paul right now, we believe again, is up here in Rome about 800 miles away and he's writing back to this letter to Philippi. And what we're, where we're reading now in Acts, it's, this is about 40, uh, or excuse me, 49 or 50 AD. I mean, his second missionary journey, he's got Silas with him, he's got Timothy with him. And here's the, here's the founding, here's the origin. Again, when Paul says in Philippians that I'm grateful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, this is what he's talking about the first day until now, okay? Don't mind what I'm doing up here. We're just, we're going to flow. So here we go. Ready? Verse 11, it says this. It says, so setting sail from Trous, which we just looked at, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. That's that little island. And the following day we went to Neapolis. That's the port city. And then we went 10 miles north, basically, to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Again, hold that in your head. A leading city in Macedonia in a Roman colony. 
We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's journeys at all, you know that what Paul does usually when he goes to a place is the first place he would go is to where? He'd go to the synagogue. We, Paul goes to the riverside here. Why? Because in Philippi, there's no synagogue. Again, that's a key piece to think about this context of Philippi, what the spiritual environment is. There. There's no synagogue. So people are gathering, and he says very clearly here, it's women. Women who are God-fearing, women of faith who are gathering by the riverside to pray, to worship, to be together. So it's this place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women there who had come together. And one of them who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed on us. She prevailed on us means she convinced us. We said yes to her hospitality because we didn't want to offend her. We stayed there. We spent time. We're told here that her whole family comes to know Jesus. Now, there's a key statement. Remember, Luke is the one that's writing Acts, right? And Luke is very detailed. And Luke writes in here, he says that she was a seller of purple goods. She's from Thyatira. So she's Greek is what we find out. She's from a suburb of, of Philippi. She's not originally from there, but she's living there now. She's got a house. She's got a home and a family. And she sells purple goods. Purple was the color of royalty. This is telling us that she was a pretty successful and wealthy merchant. She was a woman of means, but somehow she had come to here and become a worshiper of God, even though she was Greek. And she's here gathering with these other women, praying at the riverside. Paul and Silas and Timothy come. They proclaim Jesus, and she puts her faith in Christ. Pretty cool, yeah? Next section. We're going to build on this, okay? It says, as we were going then, in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, this back to this same place, this same riverside, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. This is now the second convert. Again, a woman. Very different socioeconomic status, right? She's a slave. She's a fortune teller. She's owned by someone. She's the property of someone else. And what happens is, again, they, they, they free her. They proclaim Christ as, as Savior. She's freed from this, and we're told that she, she comes to know Christ. And what happens, I'm going to skip verses 19 uh, to 24 and kind of just tell you about it in my own words. What happens is because Paul does this, his owners, the owners of this girl obviously get really mad, right? I mean, they, they've just lost a whole bunch of money now because this girl has freed from this demonic oppression. She's no longer fortune-telling. She, she's a free person. She's got agency, and in her agency, she chooses Christ because Christ has chosen her. And so they lose their means of income. They get upset. The whole city gets upset. They actually stone Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke here as well. They're thrown into prison uh, because what the people say is these guys are coming here, and they're proclaiming something in our city that is not in line with Roman belief, not in line with Roman custom, not in line with what we allow to be okay within the spiritual context of this city that we live in, that we love, that's ours. You getting, you getting the picture? And so Paul ends up in, in, in prison. Next section we're going to look at then is that, 20, verse 25. It says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they're singing hymns to God in the prison. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bond was unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, and I was about to, he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, and they washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up into the house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Three different pictures, but this is the very foundations. When we go back then to Philippians, and Paul writes and says in verse 3 through 5, he says, I thank God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making all my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That was the first day. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty crazy to think about. This church is actually now about 10 or 12 years old when we get to the book of Philippians, maybe 14 years, depending on it. They're a church that's been pretty healthy, pretty good. Again, Paul's not writing because there's any major issues, although we're going to see him address some. They're a church that's been generous, a church that's been faithful, a church that has partnered with him again from that first day until now. For the past 14 years, wherever he's gone, he's spoken highly of them. They've supported, they've partnered in the gospel, not just being proclaimed in Philippi, but all throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul says, I'm grateful for you because of your partnership in the gospel. What is this word partnership? If you had a Greek text, this word would be koinonia, which often we, in our English mind, or what's often translated for us is, is fellowship. See, but when we see the word fellowship, and what fellowship often we think about is that it's people coming around for a common purpose, almost because of an affinity, because there's something that brings us together that we have in common that's the same. But in the Greek context, fellowship is not the same as partnership. Partnership has a much deeper meaning because partnership says we're in this together through thick and thin. We're in this together no matter what. And we're actually in this not because of commonalities, but because of common purpose. Fellowship often speaks of commonality. Partnership speaks of common purpose. And so why was it important to look at <laughs> Acts 16? Why was it important to look at that? I want you guys to look and see this, who were the original people, the original founders of the church, the original partners in the gospel in Philippi. Again, we had Lydia, who was a wealthy suburban Greek woman. We had a slave girl, marginalized of society, lowest of low. You had a Philippian jailer who was a Roman middle class. He had great allegiance to the emperor of Rome, and at that time, the emperor of Rome actually was called Lord and Savior. Imagine in his mind. The reason why he actually was going to commit suicide was because he was afraid of the shame of disappointing his Lord and Savior, the Lord and Emperor, when, when if he found out that, the, that the, uh, those in prison had gotten away. This is the context that Paul is writing into. A very secular city, again, that is tied to and bound by Roman principles and precepts. It's a city that's on the side of a river. We know that because the women were worshiping there. It's a place of commerce. It's a place of fresh water springs. It's a place actually where there's fresh gold mines, producing gold mines. There's great wealth in this area. And what we see here in Acts 16 is this picture of freedom for a handful of different people, a variety of different people. 
a wealthy woman who ends up finding out that there's freedom from the entrapment and the principles of just wealth and capitalism that were so rampant in her city. There's a young woman who is freed from the spiritual oppression that aligns with the spiritual milieu of the day, again, in her city. There's a man who is set free from the political oppression and weight of his role and his job, again, that was there in this city in which he lived. Acts 16 paints this picture of the power of the gospel to bring freedom for people across every area of life. You see the picture there? Men, women, rich, poor, middle class, spiritually oppressed, financially wealthy, but yet oppressed by the system, politically oppressed and confused. I love this picture. It's so rich. It's so diverse. And so when Paul says, I thank you, and I'm writing to you because I have joy in your partnership in the gospel, he's not writing to people who are all the same. He's not writing to people that can get along and are doing partnership and have lived successfully and been a great and beautiful and healthy church for 10 to 14 years because they're all the same. No, to the exact opposite, he's writing about the power of the gospel to bring diverse people from different backgrounds, yes, living in the same city, but from different walks of life, different stories, together for the sake and the purpose of the gospel. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. And I don't know about you, but that story actually sounds a little bit similar to where we're sitting. We're about 10 to 12 years old, Missio. We live in a city on the edge of a river. A city that has a pretty crazy spiritual environment and background. A city that has quite a, amount, a lot of wealth. Might not be because of fresh water springs and gold mines, but there's a lot of other things you can name in that place. A city that's pretty held under different political agendas. And I believe a city that is hungering and thirsting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I are called to be partners in that together. We'll talk about that more in a bit. What Paul does then is in this opening, he goes from praise now to petition. Because one of the things we're going to learn and we're going to see in Paul's theology and in Paul's writing, it's always about freedom in Christ. And it's always about the remembering and the understanding that there's always room for more transformation. This church, again, healthy, good, 10, 14 years old, but they haven't made it yet. They're not quite yet who God has called them to be. And I would say the same is true for us. So Paul moves from praise to petition, and he does it this way in verses uh, 9 through 11. He says, and I, excuse me, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. There's three things that, that Paul prays here. He, he prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, or depth of insight. He prays that because of that, they then, they'd be able to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And he prays then that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. See, again, the Philippians, they're, they're a pretty healthy church. 
They've already shown their faith. They've already shown their love. They've already shown their works of, of, of goodness through faith and love. But what Paul actually prays here is that they would grow in faith, in love, in Christ. It says here, in knowledge and understanding. But again, in, in Greek, when the word knowledge appears in our New Testament, specifically in Paul's epistles, it's not knowledge of just a head knowledge. What Paul is praying is that in the middle of the opposition that they're facing, which he's going to talk about a number of times, in the middle of this crazy context that they live in, what Paul is praying is that they would have a knowledge that flows and stems from the experience of living out the love of God, yes, in community, yes, in relationship with God personally, but also through living by faith and living out this gospel that they say they proclaim. It's a, it's, a, it's a knowledge that comes through experience. It's discernment, again, that comes through experience. It's not knowledge that comes from just being together, flipping this, and having a bunch of head knowledge. But it's knowledge and discernment that comes through the actual exercising of this belief of faith in every manner of their life. When Paul says here, and in all discernment, and he's not saying that you would know all things up here. He's saying, but you would know the experience of how much God loves you in Christ. And you would know that experience, again, in community here, out on mission to this world, that you would have the ability to then know how to discern when you're living in this world and in this confusing context that you live in, that you'd be able to look at things and discern them through the love of Christ. What is good for me? What is proper for me? What is right for me? That you would be able to look at things and be able, he says here, to prove what is excellent. To not just have every idea that runs by you and jump on board with it because everybody else in this Romanized culture is jumping on board with it. Not just every fad that comes by, the Philippians would go and run with it. No, not just every political thing that's thrown in front of you, jump on board. No, but you would say, in the light of the love of God that I have experienced, and I know it intellectually, yes, because true doctrine is important, but I've also lived it out by experience, and I know God's love that way, that I'd be able to look at these things going on in this culture, in this society, and I would be able to look and go, what in this is worthy of being called excellent? What of this is worthy to be called good? What of this is actually praiseworthy and gospel aligned so that I would then go in line with it? Do you see, do you see what Paul's talking about here? Again, it's not just a head knowledge love. It's an experiential love where the rubber meets the road in day-to-day -day life that they would have this ability to prove what is good and what is right. So that why? You could live pure and blameless. So you don't just get dragged along with the culture and the traditions of sin. Or in the confusion of whatever the day is throwing out there. The third thing he praises is that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He's calling them back over and over again in the midst again of the confusion, the opposition, the things going on in their context, which again I would say is probably not too different than ours. He's calling them back over and over and over again to fix their eyes on Jesus Christ and to learn how to continue to be partners with Christ in what God is doing in their city and in the world. In the same way that as when Paul was first wanting to go up to Galatia and Holy Spirit said, nope, you're not supposed to go there right now. And he wanted to go up to somewhere else, right? Back in Acts. And the Holy Spirit said, nope, you're forbidden from going there. He ends up having to spend the night, and in that night, God speaks to him and says, I want you to go here. And Paul goes, oh, okay. See, Paul's inviting them into that type of discernment, that type of growth, that type of partnership in the gospel. 
to be a church and a people living in a crazy, confusing context that know how to hear and align themselves with the voice of God in line with the work that he's doing that is moving this world forward until the day of Christ's return. A people that grow up and mature, that learn to have love that abounds beyond limits, beyond their boundaries, beyond what they've known and done before. A church that grows up and experiences that love from God in their own lives, experiences it in their fellowship, and then knows how, again, to apply that in day-to-day life in the context of Philippi. So that the gospel continues to advance in and through their lives in partnership, not because they're all the same, not because they all came from the same background, not because they all look alike, not because they like to all do the same things, but no, because they have experienced freedom through the love of Jesus Christ for them. What do you think? Pretty compelling, I'd say. And I'm excited over the next, yeah, eight, nine weeks to look through the book of Philippians with, with this as our, as our background, with this undergirding us, the context. I'm excited for us to think about and talk about all these verses that we know but are often taken out of context to see what do they actually mean then in light of this backdrop, in light of this proclamation to the gospel. See, what Paul's doing here is he's, again, writing to a church that's pretty healthy, pretty good, pretty mature, actually, but he says, you're not done yet. There's more maturity to take place. There's more growth for you. There's, there's more that God wants to do. And this is where Paul actually lands then in verse 6, which probably, I would say, out of this chunk, probably is the one that many of you have memorized and have an understanding of. Verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, I love that Paul in his theology and all his letters, but in particular in Philippians, what Paul does is he looks at this church and he says to them, yeah, you've got a couple issues, there's a couple things, but don't lose heart. And yeah, there's some things going around in the context around you that are hard, but again, don't lose heart. Because God, by his grace, has started a good work in you individually and holistically as a church. And your sanctification, your continuation in salvation, Your maturation actually is not based upon your sin-ridden efforts. Though Paul is going to call us to account on what is our effort and our application. But what Paul does here as he starts this letter is he reminds them that our spiritual identity, our spiritual security, our ability to be partners with God in the gospel, it's based upon God's promise and God's provision for us in Christ. And I don't know about you, but that gives me freedom to go, okay, I can acknowledge in the places where I'm, I'm still in progress. But I can also hear this way in which God is calling me up in a new season and in a new time to partner with him in new ways to be a proclaimer of the gospel. And that's what I'm excited about is for us to talk through and work through this letter, the ways in which that's happening. Here's, here's a couple application things I want to just bring to us this morning, kind of as we lay the, the foundation of, of this book. Missio, I'm, I'm, part of what I'm excited about is, is we've been slowly seeing progress and things in this building, even with the lights being all replaced this week and cleaning out last week. The more and more I spend time here and walk around and pray, the more and more I'm convinced that God has given us this place so that it would be a place of freedom and healing for people. This, this isn't about us. And so God's calling us into a partnership, I believe, similar to that in which we read about in Acts similar to that in which the context of this church is. People being 
called out of slavery and oppression like the slave girl and into true family, into true community. Freed from being bound by things that this culture would call them to, that isolate them, that hold them down, and into the freedom and the love of God. I think God has given us this place so that there are people that, who are enslaved by, again, the progress and the wealth and the, the, the constant machine of Portland that are enslaved by that. They think they're free because they got wealth and they can do whatever they want. They're, they're totally enslaved. And for them to see what does it look like to come into community, to share life together, to live generously, to steward things for the glory of God and the gospel, and to be free and not enslaved by that agenda of progress. That one hits home maybe a little too close, maybe. A place, too, where people are freed from, as the jailer was, again, from the political ideologies of that place. So much so that people would, would give their lives for a cause like this man would, to, to uphold these, these political ideologies. And hear me, whether it's right or whether it's left, neither are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a third way, there's a different way that, that Paul calls them to live to, that Jesus calls us to live to, that the gospel calls us to live to, that the kingdom calls us to live to. Not laying our lives down for either of these agendas on either side, but partnership in the gospel. And again, we've got people in our city that are enslaved to these ideologies and these agendas, hungry for freedom, healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I look at the picture of this church, and again, I see where there's healing on, on every level, spiritual, emotional, physical, relational, amongst diverse people, men, women, old, young, slave, free, rich, poor, united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Missy, I believe that that's why we have this place, and that's what our next season is, is learning for us to discern even more where is Jesus at work in this city? Where is Jesus at work in this region? Where is Jesus at work in our world? And how is this place, a place where we come and yes, we get to learn and experience and have new knowledge of the depth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus through what we do together, but also how does it compel us to go out into the world in partnership for the gospel so that other people experience healing and freedom in every way, shape, and form across every spectrum of what's happening. So for you personally, what does it look like for you to continue to seek a transformed life through the grace of God? See, Paul's going to push us to think about that individually. What does it look like for you personally? What are the areas where you know that God is calling you up to continue to experience transformation in the gospel? See, because for Paul, there is no such thing as a gospel that doesn't produce a transformed life. All throughout scripture, there is no such thing as a gospel that does not produce a transformed life and an ongoing transformation at that. So where is God inviting you personally to continue to experience transformation through his grace? Secondly, where do you need to say yes to being a partner and a participant in the gospel and the way that this community uh, feels called to, to, to proclaim it? And I don't just mean because I come here and I worship on Sunday. But, but where is God calling you personally into, into partnership? Again, beyond the level of bounds of love that, that normally you're used to. One of the beautiful things about, again, this book of Philippians that I love is that Paul, in this first uh, several chapters, excuse me, verses alone, over and over, he uses the word all, 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 all of you, all of you, all of you, over and over again, all. He's not just writing 
to the overseers. He's not just writing to the deacons. It says to the saints, this church body, the whole church. And what Paul does is he calls them to this, this again, incredible unity and partnership in the gospel across the diversity of who they are. You know, Barna researched this last year, um, last, during the pandemic, they did, they did some research, and one of the things they did is they surveyed Christians about just kind of their view of, of whether or not being a Christian or being even part of a church community is, is a public or a private thing. And shockingly, 56% of Christians feel that their spiritual life is entirely private. 56% of Christians feel that their spiritual life is entirely private. And the last two years of the pandemic and the isolation and all that has only accelerated that and caused it more and more for people, because of the isolation, to feel like, oh, I'll just, I'll just duck back into this thing. I'll just lean into here. But what we're going to see and be reminded of over and over again in Philippians is that Jesus called us to a very different way. Again, the, the, the scriptures do not know of a, of a gospel that leaves someone in isolation or allows someone to remain a single soul individual. There's a salvation into a family. There's a salvation into community. There's a salvation into a people who are considered a priesthood and a kingdom of, the kingdom of God people who are working in partnership for the proclamation of the gospel. And so my question to you is this, what does it look like for you, each and every single one of us, to choose into gospel partnership, not according to the natural bent of my flesh, not according to what would be comfortable and easy for me, but to choose into gospel partnership for the sake of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of his love, because of the freedom that I've experienced in him and the freedom that I believe he wants to bring to others around me in my city. So one of the things that Paul's going to remind us over and over again, too, is this, that Jesus chose life and Jesus chose death because he thought you and I were worthy of that. We're going to be reminded in chapter 2 of this beautiful poem that speaks of how Jesus chose not to maintain his equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto, but he put that aside and he took on the form of flesh, the form of a man, even becoming a servant to the point of death, death on a cross. What this book is going to remind us of is that when God looks at you and God looks at me and God looks at the people of this world, he sees us as worthy of giving his son. He sees you as worthy. Again, not because of what you've done, not because of who you are, not because of your background, not because of what you've achieved, and not because of things that you aren't, but because of, of Jesus Christ. And so one of the key things Paul's going to call us to, in verse 27, he's going to say this, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or an absent, I hear from you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One of the things we're going to be talking about throughout this series, Missy, was what does it again look like for us to live lives worthy of the gospel? Knowing and believing that God has already proclaimed us worthy, what does it look like for us to live now in response worthy of that gospel? This morning, we're going to respond in worship, and we're going to do it a little, a little differently than normal. And I'm not wrapping in this thing up as clean as maybe I would, because the song that we're about to play, I want, to, I want you to consider this the wrap-up. This is my wrap-up. Instead of Kelly coming and, and singing a song, we're going to play a song. Uh, it'll have visuals, it'll have lyrics. And the title of this song is called, Is He Worthy? And my invitation to you is to listen to it, 
is to sit in it, is to be asking God, even as you listen, God, what are you, where are you calling me in participation with you in, in the gospel? Because I think over and over again, Monsieur, throughout this series, the question we need to be asking ourselves, again, as we already know that we're proclaimed worthy, but for us to say, is Christ worthy? Is Christ worthy of my participation? Meaning, is Christ worthy really of access to every area and part of my life? Is Christ worthy of me partnering with him? And that might sound funny, but I think honestly that's the question we need to be asking ourselves if we're going to become the people in the church that God's calling us to. To think about all the ways in which we actually think we're more worthy of something, in which we actually know better than, in which we would have to think about lowering ourselves or cutting something out in order to allow Jesus to actually be Lord and Savior, to be the one who calls the shots, to be the one who is sufficient in grace, to be the one who allows us, as we sang this morning, to be content in every circumstance, as we'll talk about it later. But I want to invite you to listen to this song, to allow it to be part of your worship. And at the end of it, we're going to give you about 90 seconds to, to sit meditatively um, and worship. And so, Father, I do, I, just, I pray and ask for you to speak to us during this song. God, would you speak to us, remind us of our worth and our value in your eyes through your son, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, would you call up the value and the worth of Christ in our eyes in order that we might align our lives with you in partnership for the sake of the gospel. God, thanks for your goodness and your faithfulness to each of us for so long individually and as a community. But God, we know you're not done with us yet. And Lord, as we traverse through this book, would you lead, would you guide us, would you speak to us, would you mature us in your love, God, in order that we become truly partners with you in the gospel for the sake of healing and freedom of ourselves, but also our city and our world. Amen.